The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. just summarising up what I've said so far and um, also raising the issue of why the medieval world passes away. You remember when I said in my very first lecture I said that medieval Europe was unique among, well Europe is unique among um, societies in that it's the only society that has modernised itself from the inside out. Uh, Every other society has been modernised by impact with contact with Europe or by contact with um, those who had contact with Europe. For example, the United States. Essentially, all your good ideas you got from us. (laughs) (laughs) I can put it that way. (laughs) Uh, The United States, of course, is a classic example of a sort of transplanted uh, early modern European culture, really to the other side of the Atlantic. Oh yeah, I, by the way, this is what you put it, I, I wore my cowboy boots. <laughs> just look, just look, look at the stitching, stitching on those. Do they have those over in Europe? No, that, that's, that's one good idea we didn't think of. <laughs> that and the bootlace tires with the scorpion clips, yes. So, so I completely forgot where I was now. America. America, yeah. Um, so, I mean, America's a great example. I mean, America now influences the whole world. You know, I've been to places at the far end of Turkey where there's no hot and cold running water, but there's still a McDonald's restaurant. You know, you can literally be in the middle of nowhere and you can see the long hand of American culture, you know, in inverted commas, I think, when we're talking about McDonald's uh, touching at the far corners of the world. But medieval Europe was the one society uh, in the world that modernised itself. What do I mean by modernising? I mean that basically transformed itself from being essentially a feudal society into a society based upon commerce, upon individual achievement rather than corporate achievement, uh, where individualism in a certain sense of the word arose, both in a good sense, I suppose, and a bad sense. So when I'm talking about Europe modernising itself, I'm not necessarily saying that that's a good thing. I'm not using modern and pre-modern in uh, flattering and pejorative senses. Uh, Europe changes itself into an uh, early capitalist, mercantile economy, a society based more upon individuals than on corporate things. You see this at the end of the 15th century where you have the rise of that most um, powerful symbol that the individual rather than the group is becoming more significant, income tax, individual income tax, where you move from a system where villages and towns are taxed to a position where individuals are being held accountable as tax phenomena. That occurs in Europe at the, towards the end of the 15th century. Why do these things happen? I think there are a whole variety of reasons 
that signal the death knell of medieval Europe as understood. I think rise of guilds and trade closely linked to urbanization. From the 11th, 12th century onwards, we've seen intellectually the results of urbanization in the rise of universities and how that shaped the way theology was uh, taught and thought about and discussed. But urbanization also has an impact upon the way society is made up. The rise of guilds, the rise of tradesmen, the rise of capitalism as a powerful force economically, socially and politically occurs at this time. That is not to say that capitalism in and of itself is enough to bring about the downfall of the Middle Ages, but capitalism sets up certain values, certain uh, agendas that don't sit so easily with the approach that we see in medieval Europe, particularly for the church. With the rise of capitalism, you get the rise of nation-state identities. You get the rise of uh, a way of thinking about life, the universe and everything, that stresses the economic. One of the things that you start to get in the 15th century uh, in, is economic resentment of others. And this, I think, is one of the ways, another one of the ways that Middle Ages pushes into the Reformation, because one of the most striking things about the writings of the early Luther, those of you who did Reformation this year will remember this, those of you who haven't, gosh, what treats you have to come next year, I bet you can scarce entertain yourself. Um, one of the, the, the things about the early writings of the early Luther is how much economic issues feature in what he writes about. He gets most upset about Part of these are, this is his language, not mine. I know there's a racial sensitivity uh, clause at the bottom of the, the uh, assessment forms I'm going to hand out. Please don't impute these views to me, they're the views of Luther. But Luther waxes eloquent about fat, lazy Italians, he said, who sit around drinking wine all day, laughing about the hard-working but stupid Germans whose tax money funds it all. So Luther is a classic example of the late medieval tendency to start to think in terms of nationalities and to start to resent other nations because of the economic impact they're having on your nation. There's far more to Luther than that. That's a very important strand of Luther's thinking because it strikes a real chord with the people, shall we say. I don't know if you have the, the case in this country, but certainly back home, um, one way to sort of immediately, or it was 10, 15 years ago, I think it's changed now, to boost your sort of popularity uh, at election time was to play the immigration card. Stir up fear of immigration. It was always good for two or three point rise on the, the electoral poll thing. But Luther does similar things back in the 16th century. And it comes out of a late medieval environment where people are starting to think in terms of language groups and nations and start to resent the way that other nations are damaging their economic and cultural prosperity. Pat Buchanan, I suppose, would be a great example of that in, in America, I would guess. Um, I'm flicking through, is it the decline of the West or something he's written recently? And he very much plays the sort of uh, well, not the race card, but the kind of cultural mixing card, which approximates to about the same thing, I think. So that's one way in which late medieval Europe starts to disintegrate in terms of what we've seen, the 
the pan-European uh, church will come under strain because of the rise of nationalities and nation-states. It will also come under strain because of the rise of the individual conscience. Now this is a very difficult one to, to trace. To what extent are people in the late Middle Ages more conscious of themselves as individuals than those previously? Well, it's very difficult to tell because the vast majority of people in the late Middle Ages, if they could read and write, didn't write and tell us about it. We don't have many, many autobiographies written in the late Middle Ages saying, gosh, you know, I struggle with all these problems and reflecting, I reflect upon myself in great detail as an individual. However, we do have the rise of a certain type of theology that I talked about last week that seems to occur in the later Middle Ages that doesn't occur earlier. And that's the theology of Gabriel Beale and the Nominalists. What is the question Beale is asking? Well, how can you know that you've got that first vital infusion of grace? It's not particularly a question that I think would have had much relevance to Thomas Aquinas in that form, or those prior to him. Aquinas isn't really interested. He's interested in the objective activity of the church. He's not really interested in the problems and the struggles of the individual conscience. So the rise of that kind of theology perhaps indicates, or is highly suggestive of, the rise of the sensitivity of individual conscience in the late Middle Ages, which medieval Catholic theology is not capable of dealing with. For Aquinas, as for Wycliffe, assurance is not an issue. Assurance is not something that a Christian should expect to have. The focus is much more on discussion of the church, on ecclesiology, of the relation of yourself to the church, rather than worrying about pangs of personal conscience. Again, late Middle Ages, we have the rise of theology that indicates a sensitivity of conscience, and Luther and Calvin and the Reformers will emerge from that. Luther directly, because the question he asks is precisely the question that Gabriel Beale is asking, but Gabriel Beale's answer is considered to be utterly inadequate for the purpose. So that is another reason. Uh, we've, I said the rise of capitalism, the fragmentation of Europe, uh, also the rise of the individual conscience. I think crisis in authority as well. I'll say this on a practical level, there is the problem of the late 14th and early 15th century of the papacy, the fragmentation of the papacy, the setting up of separate popes. As different powerful factions within Europe vie for control of the papacy, different popes are elected <coughs> simultaneously. So on a practical level, the fragmentation of Europe and the rise of powerful groups within Europe itself leads to a fragmentation of the papacy. On an intellectual level, we talked last week about voluntarism. Voluntarism focuses attention more and more upon revelation, more and more upon the channels of authority. One is left with a feeling in the later Middle Ages that more and more uh, is being hung upon less and less in terms of authority. The papacy is being shown as in many ways inadequate for the task for which it was designed. 
and the rise of radical volunteerism puts more and more pressure on the papacy to be even an even stronger, even more firm guide to truth. Simply can't sustain that. And again, the culmination of that, I think, comes in Martin Luther. <coughs> Martin Luther's uh, early writings, again, are not so much, well, they are, they're discussions of justification by faith, they're discussions of late medieval problems of assurance, they are also discussions of the problem of authority. Where does authority lie? So again, pressures building in the late Middle Ages lead to a fracturing of old authority structures. What are the positive points of continuity, though? These are some of the negative things that lead to the transformation of Europe at this late point in time. Um, this is an actually, I'll just throw this out as a side. Um, one of the things that interests me about the Reformation, I've become increasingly interested in over the years, is the way in which the Reformation put huge demands upon the individual that the medieval church had not done. Many of the dramatic changes that take place in the 16th and 17th century, I think, are explainable in the context of understanding that people are suddenly being required to take a lot more responsibility for themselves than they ever were before. The phenomenon seems to occur at the same time in the Catholic Church as well. You get the rise of casuistry, cases of conscience, books that tell you how to live your life in a way that these books were never written before. Why is that? It's because the old authority structures have been undermined and individuals have now got to think for themselves more. So again, I'll just throw that in, tie that in with my uh, brief spiel about individualism. What are the points, though, of real continuity and strength between the Reformation and the Middle Ages? Remember I said to you in the very first class, we need to get beyond the idea that the Reformation simply breaks decisively with everything that's in the past. There are obvious reasons why that cannot be the case. None of us can break with our own pasts decisively for a start. Secondly, the reformers, the Reformation tradition works within an established theological vocabulary and way of thinking that's been developed for a thousand years. It was impossible for them to break with that. It would have been foolish for them to have tried. So what are the points of continuity? What can we, as reformed people, if you like, look back on the Middle Ages and appreciate a number of things I would suggest. Trinitarianism. The doctrine of the Trinity is reflected upon and developed in the Middle Ages. The West comes increasingly to adopt the Augustinian paradigm of understanding the Trinity. We talked about this in the Greek Orthodoxy class, and I said, you know, one of the criticisms that the Eastern Orthodox make about the Augustinian trajectory on the Trinity, and one of the criticisms that I myself feel has some merit to it, is the idea that the West reduces the difference between the persons to that of relation. Trinitarianism in the West tends on the whole to be very comfortable with the unity of God, and therefore to have a problem with the threefoldness. And Augustine and his follower, Bo Boethius, and then all those who comment on Boethius in the Middle Ages, tend to root 
The difference in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is it's a difference of, difference of relation. So the personhood, the, the individual personality, if you like, is dependent upon the relation. Whereas in the East, the other holds. The East is generally more happy with the threefoldness and then has difficulty explaining the unity. I would suggest to you, just as on a systematic level, that um, where you start with the doctrine of the Trinity will determine what problems you run into. If you start with the unity, you will run into a problem trying to explain the threefoldness. But that doesn't mean that starting with the threefoldness is going to make life any easier. If you start with the threefoldness, you're going to run into a problem explaining the unity. The best, I can't remember which one of the Cappadocian fathers it was, was it Gregory Nazianzus, who said, every time I think of the one, I think of the three. And every time I think of the three, I think of the one. I think we probably can't do a lot better than that. The Trinity is a mystery. The problems that you will encounter will be encountered uh, to a large extent on the basis of your starting point. But the medieval church in the West preserves the doctrine of the Trinity. And that counts for much. And the reformers themselves acknowledge that that counted for much by the fact that they acknowledge Roman baptism. They acknowledge Roman baptism because it used the baptismal Trinitarian formula and was therefore valid. I happen to think myself, and I say this as a Presbyterian, not as a Baptist, I happen to think that they were driven to make that move largely the reformers by pragmatic need to, well, by the pragmatic need not to be Anabaptists, shall we say. That if they had not allowed the validity of Roman baptism, that would have allowed a very, very significant um, concession to Anabaptism. But if we lay that to one side, the reformers themselves acknowledge the profound Trinitarianism of the Western tradition and built upon it. Secondly, anti-Pelagianism. We need to be careful here. We need to make a careful distinction theologically at this point between I would call the content of salvation and the framework of salvation. I would suggest that uh, justification by faith, justification by the imputation of Christ's righteousness to the sinner refers to the content of salvation. That's why I'm using the term at this point. The content, if you like, is what happens to you as an individual as you move from wrath to grace in the framework within the sphere of history. <coughs> the framework of salvation is, if you like, the overall relationship between God and his creation within which the individual movement of you from wrath to grace takes place. The framework of salvation is that to which I apply the term anti-Pelagian. The reformers, I think, break pretty decisively with the whole of the medieval tradition on the contents of salvation. Justification by faith is something that one doesn't find in that form in the Middle Ages. Justification for the medievals is a development of Augustine's idea of justification which is where the individual is made righteous. So justification and what we often call sanctification 
or perhaps renewal, increased conformity to the likeness of Christ. These things are conflated within the Augustinian framework of the Middle Ages, where justification becomes a process by which you are slowly made more and more righteous. It's not the case in the Reformation. Justification refers to status. The moment you believe, you are justified. You can never be more justified than that. It's like being, uh, it is the equivalent of being guilty or innocent. If you're declared innocent, you can't you know, go on and do good deeds and become more innocent. It's a status thing, it's not a process. <coughs> the reformers break decisively with the medievals on this point. The reformers are not Augustinian there. The Catholic Church is Augustinian on justification, not the reformers. But the reformers do build upon much of the framework of salvation as developed in the Middle Ages. There is a stream of thinking, an often powerful stream of thinking, within the theologians of the Middle Ages, particularly the theologians of the later Middle Ages, that is very anti-Pelagian, that has a high view of God's sovereignty, that has a low view of human ability, that has a radical distinction between God as creator and the world and humanity as creations. And it's within that stream that we find continuities with the later Reformation. This is why if you read your 17th century Puritans and Reformed theologians carefully, you will find them citing people like Thomas Aquinas, Gregory of Rimedy, Thomas Bradwardy. The Reformation builds upon the framework of salvation as developed within the Middle Ages. So there is a strong strand there of a continuity between the Middle Ages and the Reformation. There are varieties and variations within late medieval understandings of anti-Pelagianism. Some people root predestination very much in the doctrine of God. Others root it uh, more as a response to human depravity. But the breadth of that tradition, again, is reflected in the breadth of Reformation and post-Reformation Protestant traditions, uh, anti-Pelagian traditions. Um, the discussion continues. It also ties into things like discussion of necessity and freedom. And we can see that much of what goes on in the 16th and 17th century with the Puritans and Reformers is merely an extension of discussions that have gone on for four, five, six hundred years without any sense of a break at all. great example would be the discussion of the breakability of Christ's bones. Because it is prophesied that not one of Christ's bones will be broken, there is an ongoing discussion in the Middle Ages about exactly what that means. Does it mean that Christ's bones are intrinsically unbreakable? Have they been made out of you know, the, the bone equivalent of stainless steel or something? Is that the kind of necessity that that prophecy imposes upon Christ's bones? Or is it a different kind of necessity? A necessity that simply flows in consequence of the prophecy being made that the bones will be preserved from being broken by not allowing them to come into the circumstances where they would be smashed to pieces. You find that discussion throughout Protestantism. In fact, it goes right way back into the Middle Ages. Gain an example of how medieval theologians 
discuss issues that are of great importance to Protestants, and Protestants continue to discuss them afterwards. And when you think about that question, it's quite important, really, even for us today. Because notions of freedom and necessity have a profound imp impact upon how we think about human responsibility, how we think about divine sovereignty. What is the power of predictive prophecy? These kind of things. Still important for us today. When I think about those things, I'm more than happy to think, well, yes, I stand in a tradition that goes back a thousand years of discussing these things. It doesn't concern me. In fact, it gives me confidence that I am actually thinking about something worth thinking about if I've got a thousand years of testimony behind me demonstrating it's an important issue to think about. There is a great tendency today that we think Christianity was invented last Saturday. That all we need is our Bibles. That modern day scholars with their profound dictionaries, etc., etc., don't need church tradition. I would say the problem with that is it gives you no perspective on yourself. The great thing about history is it does give you a bit of perspective on where you yourself stand. How many of the great biblical scholars of the 19th century who uh, turned the world upside down are now completely forgotten about? Who reads Harnack? Who reads Ritual today? Guys like me read them because we're historians. But very few people read Ritual to get any kind of uh, positive benefit from what he's saying. So that was just a little aside there, justifying my own existence as a church historian. <laughs> <laughs> so, the other aspect of, I think, mysticism. And here we have we can often tend to focus very much as theologians on the dogmatic side of things and we look for continuities in terms of dogmas, anti-Pelagianism, Trinitarianism. I've been doing it myself in the first part of this class. But there is also, I think, a mystical dimension. And I'm using mysticism here in a very, very broad sense. Uh, the questions that Dionysius the Areopagite raises, for example, about how we use language about God uh, do we predicate things positively or negatively of him? Obviously those kind of rarefied, dogmatic, mystical questions persist. But there is also uh, a great appreciation in the 16th, 17th century for the kind of spirit that some of the medieval fathers exhibited. Bernard, Bernard of Clairvaux, whatever you want to call him, great example of this one of the most oft-cited fathers by Calvin. Calvin considers him an early church father. He knows him much later on. Uh, that's because your, your category of father can be fairly elastic, and you can expand it chronologically to include the good guys, and you can retract it chronologically when necessary to exclude <laughs> bad guys. So, you know, when Calvin looks back, he doesn't have the Enlightenment periodization of history that we have. Hey, the early church ends in 500. 600 or wherever. Then you get the early Middle Ages, then you have the late Middle Ages, and now bang, you have me, I'm in the early modern period. No, Calvin just looks back on the whole sweep of church history and he makes, he makes the periodizations up as he goes along, if you like, depending on how they suit his purpose. But Bernard of Clairvaux, one of the most influential people on Calvin, not simply from the point of view of his theology, but also from the point of view of the devotional and experimental quality of his work. That here was a man who meditated upon Christ. Here was a man who felt Christ in his heart. And that is an element that's picked up in the Reformation. 
The same applies to Augustine. We tend to think of Augustinianism as Trinity, anti-Pelagianism, doctrine of the church. That's all true. But there is also the Augustine of the Confessions. And the Augustine of the Confessions continues to be influential through the Middle Ages and on into the Reformation and beyond. And the Augustine of the Confessions is the Augustine who is concerned with religious experience. And the religious experience, those of you who do early church, you should have read the Confessions. If you haven't, I suggest you go away and read it over the summer. Confessions is one of the most influential books in Western Christianity. Partly because it triggered the Pelagian controversy. But partly because it has shaped the way Christians have thought about their experience almost since the moment it was written. You cannot read Luther's account of his conversion, given to us in 1545, without realizing there are strong echoes of Augustine. And Luther's understanding of his own experience of conversion has been shaped by his reading of Augustine. You get the same in John Bunyan and John Wesley, mediated via Luther, I think, in those cases. But Augustinianism provides us with another strand of continuity on the experimental level. Guys like Bernard of Clairvaux, focusing their devotion so much upon the cross of Christ, point towards key uh, Reformation emphases. So that's another strand of influence from the Middle Ages to the Reformation. <coughs> major point of discontinuity uh, has to be the doctrine of the church. What you have in the Middle Ages is Augustinian doctrine of the church focused, however, upon the institution of the papacy of Rome. The church is identified with a particular institution that is guarded by the, well, which through the Holy Spirit guards a particular tradition of teaching. There is no opposition in the medieval mind between the institution of the church, the tradition of teaching that the church gives, and the real church. At the Reformation that breaks down. What you have at the Reformation is a redefinition of the church. First of all, as not ascribing any significant authority to the papacy. The early Luther, the Luther up until the early 1520s, seems to be, uh, well he certainly writes polite letters to the Pope, usually prefacing works in which he's very rude about the papacy. And he's constantly trying to make a distinction between getting at the Pope as an individual and getting at the papacy as an institution. The Reformation, however, and this is important, I think, for understanding the Reformers, understanding of the tradition that goes before it. The Reformation was a redefinition of the church that effectively said to the church leadership that the institutional church has left the real church because it has departed from the real tradition of apostolic teaching. get this very, very strongly in Calvin's reply to Sadolater, one of his early works justifying the Reformation program.
what Calvin is saying is that, and I think it's, it's important to grasp it because it, it's, it both separates some of what happens in modern evangelicalism from the Reformation, as well as it separates the Reformation from the Middle Ages. It means that the reformers themselves understood their reforming program against the background of the Middle Ages as a very conservative one. They were not out to destroy the church, they were out to take the church back to that tradition of teaching which it should always have held. And from which, as it deviates, it ceases to be the church. So the reformers are really saying that there has been a great tradition of teaching and we can look back at the Middle Ages and we can see people like Bernard of Clairvaux and we can locate them within that apostolic tradition of teaching and we can see that they are part of the true church. What has happened, however, is that the institution of the church, the papacy and the College of Cardinals, have moved out of that mainstream tradition and have therefore ceased to be the church. What the reformers then see themselves as is the continuation of the true church that they could, if they wanted to, trace back through the Middle Ages. They're the continuation of the true church because the true church is no longer defined in terms of a specific institution located in a specific geographical zone, i.e. Rome. The church is now defined as the place where God's spirit dwells and God's spirit dwells where the word is preached, i.e. where the true tradition of Christian teaching is maintained. So the reformers themselves see their own project of reformation as very conservative, I think, in terms of what has gone on before them. They are conserving the truth. They are not trying to destroy the church. If the church, the institutional church, is destroyed as <coughs> collateral damage, then that is the, pro the problem for the institutional church because they've deviated from the teaching. And that, I think, when you think about the reformers in that way, it allows us to understand why they have a more nuanced approach often to the Middle Ages than we impute to them or that we have ourselves. They understand the church as the place where the true tradition of the gospel is maintained. They don't identify it with a geographical, physical institution. Both reformers and medievals, however, would regard themselves as Augustinian on the church in that one cannot separate from the true church and remain in a state of grace or salvation. But of course for the medievals that is separation from the institutional church devolving from Rome. For the reformers it's separation from the gathering that preserves the true teaching of the gospel. I think historically Clearly the church makes the scriptures on the basis that the church recognises that these books are canonical and these other books are not. So historically, one can say that the church makes the scriptures. I don't think that Paul's letter to the Romans becomes inspired and canonical because the church declares that it is so. I think that the church declares that it is so because Paul's letter to the Romans is inspired and canonical. I don't think even the most extreme Roman Catholic, however, would argue that Paul's letter is only canonical because the church declares it to be so. I think they would, God's inspiration is prior to the church's declaration, even for the most extreme Catholic. 
I think the difference between Protestantism and Catholicism would be, and those of you who come from Catholic background may be able to correct me on this, I think the difference would be that the Catholic Church would maintain that you could not know it was canonical unless the Church bound you to that belief by declaring it to be so. In practice, that's probably how many Protestants operate. But Protestantism has other ways of doing it as well, more sophisticated ways. But I suspect most of us accept the canonical scriptures in practice because our minister, our presbytery, our creeds and confessions tell us that these books are canonical and other books aren't. No, I, I accept a lot of things because people tell me they're tell me that on authority. I certainly only think that whatever the church is doing, it is only ever recognizing what is already the case in that situation. It is not um, the church does not have the right to wake up tomorrow and say, "I've decided that um, Paul didn't write the letters to the Ephesians, so we'll kick it out of the canon." No, I don't. I don't think that's the case at all. Which are, I certain very certain Protestant interpretations of what Rome claims would lead you to believe that Rome could do that. I'm not sure that, that Roman Catholicism does claim it can do that, but I've never really looked at Roman Catholic materials on on the process of the canonization of Scripture to be able to tell if that's a fair or an unfair description. Just since the uh, the topic of the candle brought up. We've, you didn't mention at all like the apocryphal writings and like where, how they fit into the canon through this period, how that, was there like, was that pretty much church canon at this point and then it was broken by yeah. the reformers? The middle, uh, it's a bit of an oversight on my part, so I should mention this. The, 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 te the Latin text of the Vulgate has official binding authority in the Middle Ages. It is, it is uh, considered to be an inspired Latin translation of the Bible. A little bit like the King James Version functions in some circles. Um, it is considered to be an inspired translation of the Bible, and it contains the Apocrypha. Um, attitudes of the Reformers to the Apocrypha are, well, certainly if you go to Calvin, he's with us, very clear. Luther, Luther has a very interesting approach to the canon all round. Um, he'll quote Ecclesiasticus, he'll quote Ecclesiasticus, and he'll hang arguments on Ecclesiasticus when he so chooses. Um, but he'll give James the flick. Um, and he's really pretty strong about it. Uh, I mean, people always try to, to water down Luther's attitude to James. He was pretty strong. He said, um, one of his table talks, I think he said, if I had my choice, I would rip little Jimmy from the Bible and <laughs> <laughs> throw him into the fire. He says. Um, and then there's a, you know the bit in James where James says, not many of you should aspire to be teachers. In, in Luther's marginal comments on the New Testament, he writes, Oh, James, if only you had taken your own advice. <laughs> so, so, I mean, this is jumping ahead of ourselves. Luther is eccentric on the canon. And, um, but certainly that is, that is one point of discontinuity between the Middle Ages and the Reformers in that um, the, the apocryphal books on kind of text-critical grounds these things that appear in Hebrew, these kind of arguments, um, the apocryphal books are excluded. Uh, and as, as far as I know, they remain, the Old Testament apocrypha remain in place in the Jerusalem Bible um, for the, the Catholic Church today. And it's quite important because the case for purgatory, for example, 
is built upon texts from Maccabees and things like this. So uh, it's quite important for the Catholics to maintain them within the scriptural canon because there are certain things that are contained in the apocryphal books that really are hard pushed to get out of the, the Protestant canon. Often the reformers regarded the, the apocrypha as containing useful things. You, you'll find this attitude that there are many useful things we're told in them, but we mustn't treat them as inspired scripture. Because as much as is there is useful, there's also stuff that is misleading. As far as I know, the New Testament canon in the Middle Ages was the same as ours. That the, the so-called New Testament apocrypha, Gospel of Thomas, things like this, they don't feature. So, not well, probably in a Gnostic group somewhere down the line, you know, it's a, a Gnostic document, so presumably it was canonical for somebody somewhere at some point, but not for the mainstream Catholic with a small c tradition. I don't really have much more to say today. I will take questions now, if you like, on the exam, on anything I've said in this course that remains unclear. Um, Carlos. Um, how popular was, was Bernard's uh, on, on conversion, his, uh, his sermon on conversion? Popular for who? Yeah, it for was who? influential as far as reflecting upon what, what conventions birds to say. Um, I'm not sure that I know. I'm not sure that we, we, we know, period, how influential it was. The fact that it's preserved would seem to indicate it was quite important, but I'm not sure that we know. No, sorry, I can't help you on that one. Sorry. Uh, I've heard that there was two streams of thought that developed in medieval times between Anselm and Abelard. One was you must believe in order to understand, and the other one was you must understand in order to believe. And, and for a while, the medieval ages took the you must understand in order to believe trajectory and got off into a bunch of speculation. Would you agree with that type of assessment? To an extent. Uh, the question is, were the two streams within the, the Middle Ages that you must understand in order to believe and you must believe in order to understand? To an extent, there were two streams, but I think a lot of it was defused by making a, a sharp distinction between um, natural theology and revealed theology. And that in natural theology there was great scope for human speculation. But the usefulness of natural theology to reveal theology was profoundly limited. I mean you have this in say Thomas Aquinas. I mean Thomas Aquinas you often think, oh he's the bad guy, he thinks you can prove God's existence. Well a, a lot of the later Protestant problems with Thomas, I don't think they're problems with Thomas at all, I think they're problems with later Thomism. I think Thomas's thought is changed in a fairly radical and significant way in the 16th century. Uh, what Thomas actually says about the proofs for God's existence is, it's virtually impossible to prove God's existence. You, you can do it. And then he lays out the five ways and says, but of course these ways are so, they require such a wealth of speculative and philosophical knowledge um, that a, very few people are going to be able to prove God's existence this way because very few people will actually understand what's going on in the proofs. They won't understand the, the philosophical stuff that you need in order to make sense of the proofs. But secondly, most significantly, even those who do prove God's existence this way cannot know that what they've proved is correct because they have no basis for checking it. The basis for checking it is divine revelation. Divine revelation requires faith. So Thomas, to me, 
you know, is he with Anselm or is he with, with sort of a, a strong Anselm or is he with Abelard on that? I think that he's much more with Anselm than with Abelard. He's allowing that human reason can be used to a certain extent outside of the um, context of Revelation, but he's basically saying, yeah, you can use it here, but very few people can, and at the end of the day, it's basically useless to them anyway. That seems to me to be a very different to the kind of Thomism that, um, say, Francis Schaeffer has a go at in his books, where you know you have this sort of, you know, the two stages, and you have this all this stuff, good stuff that you know about God outside of the context of faith, as the kind of foundation on which you build your revelation. That I think is later Thomism. That's not Thomas. So I think the Reformation, uh, the the Middle Ages, are much more nuanced in their relationship between faith and reason than often we. We allow them credit for, and there's not so much two streams, I don't think, as a group of theologians wrestling somewhere in the middle. And of course, the the absolute power of God and the decreed power of God that we talked about last week opens this up as well. You can know a lot of things about God's absolute power. You can, you know, the unbeliever can say a lot of things about God according to his absolute power. But that's next to useless in terms of salvation, really, because the end of the day, the God we deal with is God as he's revealed himself to be towards us. And that's the God of decreed power. And we've no way of knowing from speculation about God's absolute power exactly what he's decided to do. Speculation about God's absolute power, if you like, allows us to know the range of options God has. But it doesn't allow us really to say anything meaningful about the way God is towards us. That again, just to pick up on something, that again is another point of continuity between the Middle Ages and the Reformation. Luther isn't interested in God. He's interested in God pro nobis, as he says. God for us. God as he's revealed himself to be towards us. You can talk about God all you want in abstract terms, and you might say some true things about him. And I think Calvin holds this same sort of position as well. You can come with the abstract truths about God in there. It's no use because it doesn't tell you anything about how God is towards you. And that's what the reformers are interested in. Um, I think the, the fragmentation of the Protestant church is, first of all, it is a real problem. In the 16th century, what did the Catholics say? They said, well, the, the problem with Protestantism is you can see how true it is by the fact there are so many different groups all claiming to have the truth. If you look at Catholic... Um, polemics against Protestantism today. What are they saying? You can tell how true Protestantism is by looking at how many different groups it contains, and they all, they all claim to be the, to have the truth. So, Protestant unity is a problem, despite what we might think, because the Roman Catholic Church hasn't seen the need to shift its polemical ground in 400 years on that one. The, the, the criticism was powerful for them four or five hundred years ago, and it's still the same today. I think that. The fragmentation we see around us today is certainly, uh, I suppose it's partly the result of the hermeneutical problem of we all come to scripture with different backgrounds and, and come up with our different interpretations. I'm not saying there isn't a truth there, I think there is a, a core truth of teaching there. But in history what we've tended to do is focus upon the peripheral things we disagree about rather than on the major things that we do agree about. So hermeneutical peripheral issues have become central. Um, I think there's a lot to be said in Protestantism, and I quote my boss Claire Davis on this. He said to me, Carl, 
Um, history of Protestantism, it's not the history of people being passionate about theology and disagreeing with each other, he said. It's the history of people hating each other and finding doctrinal reasons to do it. And I think there's a lot of truth about that in Protestantism. You look at some of the debates over the last 50 or 60 years, I'm betting a lot of it comes down to people hating each other. And therefore, it's like the, we talked about this in the filioque clause. It's not an issue until you have groups that don't get on working closely together, suddenly having to distinguish themselves from each other. Hey, the filioque clause, the Pope soft pedal on it, it's not a problem until you get to Palestine and you've got missionaries from the East and the West meeting together in a small geographical locale and suddenly having to say, come to my mission organization. We're not like them because they hold to the filioque clause. That's when it becomes important. So I think there's an awful lot of that in the history of Protestantism. It comes from the fact that even say Protestants are still totally depraved. A lot of depravity feeds into it. Um, Having said that, however, I think one could look at the Protestant church and say, well, on the account that the reformers give of it, there is a certain unity there. That there is a certain unity around the basics of the gospel. What are the basics of the gospel? Well, I think um, God is Trinity. Christ is divine human mediator who came and really did the things that the Bible claims that he did. Justification by faith. These are the things that I think um, there is still a substantial amount of Protestant unity over. Despite the denominational differences, there is substantial Protestant unity on these things. Um, and one can always take the Machen line on denominations. Machen looks at the dispute between Zwingli and Luther on the Lord's Supper and he says, Luther's wrong. Uh, Christ isn't humanly present in the sacrament. But he'd have been even more wrong if he turned around to Zwingli and said, it doesn't matter. Machen's view of denominations was they actually witnessed to the significance of particular doctrinal points that reflect on the sacraments and the gospel. So there is that dimension to it as well. I think we can sometimes use that view as an excuse for fragmentation. Carl McIntyre died recently. You know, what a, what a, what a testimony. You know, he, just you know, he separated and he separated and he separated until ultimately it was just him and his immediate family. Just the only true church left. A.W. Pink was you know, a British example of the same phenomenon. Ends up living in the Western Isles of Scotland. We have the most conservative Presbyterian tradition probably in Europe. Uh, and yet doesn't find a church there pure enough for him to fellowship with. So we can use the Machen line sometimes, I think, to excuse what, to me, verges on blasphemy, I think. Um, so it's a difficult balance to strike. I mean, I can't solve Protestantism and unity problems, but I, I think it is a problem. But how we solve it, I just don't know. The trouble is there are human beings involved, not just doctrine. I'll take a few more questions. Uh, the issue of church and state, in, in Southern's book, he makes this a, a pretty big deal. And as we see through um, looking at the continuities and discontinuities with yeah. the Reformation, yeah. uh, there are still quite a lot of continuities with the identifying of the sort of body of Christ as as the citizens yeah. of the state, or the particular citizens of yeah. the city. Yeah. see that a lot in Spain and later yeah. in Erasmus. Yeah. I wondered if you could describe uh, sort of how that tradition progressed through the Reformation. And we've got Erasmians at the uh, Westminster uh, 
Um, well, I, I think the, the idea that every citizen is also a member of the church is not peculiar to Erastianism. It's the same with Calvin. It's why the Anabaptists are so dangerous. No, why do you go about drowning people who are simply baptised by immersion? Or baptised, you know, adults after profession by fusion? To us, it seems a silly thing to do. At the time, of course, what the Anabaptists are seen as doing is breaking the relationship between church and state in that everybody who is under the kingdom of the church is also under the kingdom of the state. So it's not, a, it's not an Erastian distinctive uh, at all. Um, and I, I mentioned the other week, Erastianism has its roots in the late Middle Ages. You find it in Wycliffe, you've got a bit in Huss, people like this. Um, Erastianism really comes into its own in England. It is most significant in the English church-state situation where the head of the church is the head of head of state. So the queen or the king, whoever is at the top, now they call them supreme governor. It's a, it's a semantic game to get out of calling the queen the head of the church. But the, the boss of the church and the boss of the state are one and the same person. So Erastianism becomes a, a force within um, England in a way that I don't think it was really on the continent. Um, you had an Erastian kind of thing in Zurich, but there you have elected magistrates. So it's not quite the same as having uh, a monarchy determining these things. And Erastianism becomes highly problematic when the English and Scottish crowns are united and James I of England, James VI of Scotland, decides that he's going to start pushing towards a uniform ecclesiastical policy for both nations. It becomes very significant in England at that particular point in time. Um, does that answer the question, or exactly what do you want me to, to say about it? I, I suppose it's, it's sort of the issue of if there is a continuity and uh, from, from the medieval uh, ideal of yep. having these things unified, having an entire unified society, if there is <coughs> that same ideal within the, the Tradition within the Reformation. Oh yeah, on that level they are they are one, you know, this idea that every baptized person is a member of the church, and they're also by virtue of existing a member of a state somewhere. That's a very medieval idea. The reformers are very medieval on that. Um, I have no doubt in my mind that the reformers believe that everybody who's baptized was a Christian. Some could ultimately demonstrate that they weren't, but the assumption was that baptism brings you into the visible church and you're therefore a Christian. And you'll get language in Luther where you know, he addresses everybody as if they're already Christians. And then the next minute he'll be talking about, it's a pity there aren't more real Christians among the Christians. So he's sort of, you know, he's aware that there's, you know, there's a need for more than just baptism. There's a need for grasping baptism by faith, if you, if you like. But this idea that everybody is both a Christian and a member of a state is a clear point of continuity with um, the reformers. I think conversionism arises more in the 17th and then on into the 18th century where Christianity, Protestantism is just, because it's become a civic thing, I mean I, I talk about Britain because that's where I'm most familiar with, with the history I guess, Protestantism becomes a civic thing as a result probably of identifying everybody who's being baptised as being a Christian. Um, you then get the need for, if you like, a further experience to validate you as a Christian. It's not just enough to be baptized, but you have to have a testimony that says at a certain point in time, on a certain day, 
you suddenly realized the significance of your baptism and you came to be a real <coughs> Christian at that point and you made the passage from wrath to grace. So conversionism, which sort of fractures the relationship between all the baptized and the state, comes in really, I think, in the 17th, 18th century. I've written an article, I've alluded to this a couple of times, about Lutheran conversion. And I now disagree with, I've modified my conclusions, I've written a response to myself, though I don't say I'm responding to myself, I, I implicitly do so. Um, I don't think conversion is that important for Luther. In the same way that it wasn't that important for the medievals. We only hear about Luther's conversion in 1545, the year before he dies. He's not interested in telling us about it before that. So it may have been privately important for him, but in his understanding of what goes on publicly in the church, the account of his conversion is not important. He never talks about it. He talks about it struggling with the devil. He talks about screaming at the devil that he's been baptized and therefore the devil must leave him alone. But he never talks about this moment in 1517 or was it 1516 or was it 1518? You know, he's even vague about the chronology when he made his decision for Christ, if you like. He never talks about that. It doesn't have any public significance to it. So I think that the, the, the later breakdown of all members of the stage are also members of the church takes place probably late 17th, early 18th century, really. I'll take another quick, one more question. Just, just a quick question on the exam. Uh, now oh, yeah. it's, it's three questions. Is it a plus one on the book, or is it two questions plus one of the same questions? Uh, the, the exam is three questions. You will all have to answer the question on the book you've read, which I can't remember the exact wording, but basically says, tell me which book you read, tell me why you think it's significant. It's a pretty vague question. It allows you to pretty well do with it what you wish. I mean, I jokingly said in the Reformation class, I mean, I, don't write, I read it and Jesus warmed my heart. <laughs> As I said, I'm absolutely delighted if you read it and Jesus warmed your heart, but it won't get you many marks in the examination. I need something a bit more, I need something that I can evaluate rather than a kind of, I had a great feeling inside as I read it sort of answer. Isn't that something? What if we read the book on mysticism? Sorry? <laughs> well, if, you, if you read the book on mysticism, obviously mysticism by definition being essentially incommunicable, just leave you a blank sheet and I'll give you an A. <laughs> but no, you have to answer that question and then if you've done a short paper, you have to answer one other question and the exam for you will only be one hour and 20 minutes long. And I think I did, I've written, I think, six, seven, eight questions. So you've got to choose one. Um, do whatever, you know, choose whichever one you wish. None of my questions are such that if you haven't done a reasonable amount of work, you can't spin them in the way you want. And I, I try to allow you to let me know what you know rather than me to find out what you don't know. <laughs> kind of philosophy. Um, if you haven't written an essay, you need to do two further questions and the exam will be two hours long. So, best bit of advice I ever got on exams, uh, did any of you watch Kung Fu in the early 70s? There's a great line in that where the chap says, um, the, the guy with no eyes speaking to Grasshopper, he says, um, do not seek to find the answers, seek only to understand the questions. <laughs> and I think that's a great but probably totally useless piece of advice. <laughs> So, uh, if you wish to come and speak to me individually about any issues or problems, do so.
And thanks for, well, it's been good that so many people have turned up so consistently. It's only worse than lecturing to an empty lecture theatre. <laughs>